Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland, so that we can help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. You can always join us in person each Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 here on our beautiful campus in Rock Spring, Georgia. Hey, take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 26. Hey, remind you if you want one of our Easter t-shirts, we've got them on sale out this direction after the service, 10 bucks. If you want to wear those with us, it's a great tool to use to invite people to church and, and we're just selling for what we have in them. Uh, and so I started a sermon series last week entitled Crossroad, Decisions That Determine Our Destiny. And when you look at that, that we, when we're at a crossroad in life, we, we call that a decision where we could go either way. We could, we could make a decision that would affect us for years, good or bad. We can make a decision that affect us for eternity, good or bad. It's called a crossroad. You're at a crossroad in life. Well, it just so happens on the way to the cross, we see people making those type decisions on the road to the cross. So for a few weeks, I'm preaching on this idea of crossroads. We're looking at people who made life-altering, changing decisions. Hey, I, I told you it's baseball season. I'm going to talk about baseball a little bit uh, as we get up into it. Did you, does anybody know if I said October 27, 2004? Does anybody know what happened on August 7, 27, 2004? Does anybody know? Is Jeff Rhodes in the building? Jeff, you in the building? Is he here today? Jeff, Jeff shout Jeff if you're here. Yeah, he may be in the early service, but uh, he would know because on October 27, 2004, it was the day after 86 long years, the Boston Red Sox won the World Series, and they broke the curse of the Bambino. Do you know what the curse of the Bambino was? That was uh, the, the curse that happened when the Red Sox traded away George Herman Ruth Jr. Does anybody know who George Herman Ruth Jr. was? We called him what? Babe, Babe Ruth. He, he debuted in baseball in Fenway Park in 1914, and Babe Ruth, get this, was a pitcher. And over the next three years, Babe Ruth won 65 games as a left-handed pitcher, but Babe wanted to hit as well, and so they began to let him hit. And in 1919, Babe Ruth set the all-time Major League Baseball home run record with 29 home runs. It was the dead air ball of baseball. They hand sewed baseballs and so they were loose and they were not tight like they are today. And they were dead as we, go, we call them then. And so it was hard to hit a home run. As a matter of fact, hitting home runs was discouraged back in the day. But Babe Ruth, not caring what anybody thought, went up and hit 29 home runs. He was a major league record and he by far was the best player in baseball in an era when athletes were hard to come by. Here was a guy who could pitch and he could hit as well. And maybe the greatest sport athlete, definitely the greatest baseball athlete that we had ever seen and really have not seen since because he could pitch and won hundreds of games and he could hit and hit hundreds of home runs. We'd never seen anything like that then or since. And so there maybe were some better hitters, Ted Williams, or maybe some more power that came out of uh, Roger Maris later on and others. But as far as total athlete, Babe Ruth was the guy. And with Babe Ruth at the helm, uh, the Red Sox won World Series. As a matter of fact, the Red Sox in the early 1900s had already won five World Series, 1903, 1912, 1915, 1916, and 1918. And Babe Ruth 
Ruth helped them win three of those World Series. But by 1919, the New York Yankees had won exactly zero World Series. And the guy who owned the Red Sox named Harry Frazee decided in 1919 after Babe Ruth had won a bunch of games as a pitcher and after he'd set the Major League Baseball record for 29 home runs, he traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees. You say, I bet he got a lot of good players. No, he didn't. As a matter of fact, here's the, here's the sheet. I'm preaching this subject. You are so close. Here's the sheet where he traded Babe Ruth. That's only page one of it, but there's the sheet. Here's what he, here's what he got for Babe Ruth. $25,000 in cash. Three promissory notes of $25,000 to be paid at a future date. And eventually another $300,000, but in order to get the other $300,000, he had to mortgage Fenway Park. So there was a brief period in uh, history where the Yankees actually owned Fenway Park as well. Because the owner, Harry Frazee, was trying to raise money so he could finance a Broadway play called No, No, Nanette. And he basically sold Babe Ruth for $25,000. The next year, Babe Ruth broke his own record and hit 54 home runs. The next year, Babe Ruth broke his own record and hit 59 home runs. With Ruth in the fold with the Yankees, they actually won the World Series with him on the roster in 1923, 1927, 1928, and 1932. Over the next 13 years, with Babe Ruth on the roster, the Yankees won four World Series. As a matter of fact, since that day, they have been, since they got Babe Ruth on their team, the Yankees have been to the World Series 40 times and have won 27 of those all after they had won zero up until 1919. And for the next 13 years, the Boston Red Sox finished last nine out of 13 years and started the infamous curse of the Bambino because it was the worst trade in sports history. It's referred to as the worst trade of any kind. The, the, the thousands and thousands of dollars that Babe Ruth bought to the Yankees through playoff games and World Series wins and merchandise sale was unimaginable. All because the Boston Red Sox owner wanted to finance a play that I'm sure you've heard of. No, no, Nanette. The worst trade in sports history. As a matter of fact, if you just go to Google and you type in worst trade, in all probability, this is what will come up. Because he sold Babe Ruth for $25,000. But listen carefully. It's officially referred to as the worst trade in sports history, but did you know it's not the worst trade in history? 
The worst trade in history happened in Matthew chapter 26. And listen, before we talk about this character on the road to the cross in Matthew chapter 26, you've got to understand this, that before we beat down on this guy too much, you've got to understand that that trade is repeated in Matthew 26 over and over again in church services every Sunday morning, even in this building, there are people who are making really bad decisions. You're standing at a crossroad and you're about to make all the wrong decisions because what happened in Matthew 26 was a guy traded in his eternal salvation for something that did not matter. And before we get too hard on him, and we'll talk about him in a moment, there are people here today, and the fact is you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you are at a crossroad in your life, and if you don't trust him soon, listen to me, your eternity hangs in the balance because you have to ask yourself, are you a Christian? Do you know for sure that you're saved? Can you lay your head on your pillow at night and know that if your eyes do not open in the morning, You'll spend eternity in a place called heaven. And the fact of the matter is, if you're here this morning, you are so close to being saved. But close doesn't count. So stand with me as we read God's word. Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to skip around a couple, so keep a lively Bible. We're going to, it's all going to be up here on the screen so you can follow along. But let's be, look beginning in verse 14, and then we'll skip some verses. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll let you keep up. But Matthew 26, verse 14, then one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? They counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray Jesus, and then look over in verse 47, the same chapter. And while Jesus was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Then flip over to chapter 27. It may be on the same page, beginning in verse number 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had found him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? You see to it. And then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Thank you. You may be seated. When you get to Matthew chapter 26, uh, uh, he's the most infamous character on the road to the cross, this Judas. Judas who was of the inner circle of Jesus. Judas who was one of the 12 disciples. He is going down in history as the betrayer. He's the man, we'll look at it in just a moment, who traded Jesus for 
30 pieces of silver. It was a historically wrong decision. It was an eternally wrong decision. But now I want to set the record straight a little bit because sometimes when you, when you watch a movie, you get the idea that Judas was this demonic character. And I, I'm not saying that he, he wasn't uh, full of the devil. But what I am saying is this, that Judas was just a regular guy. Judas was one of the 12. Judas was like you and he was like me. He was just a guy who made a horribly wrong decision, who made a historically wrong decision, who made an eternally wrong decision. As a matter of fact, it was such a bad decision. Here's what Jesus said about him in Matthew 26. These these verses are hard to read. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to the man by who the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Jesus said about his betrayer, he would be better off if he'd never been born. Now listen to me carefully. I'm not trying to be melodramatic, but the truth is if you die without Christ... It would be better had you not been born. If you die without Christ, you are going to spend an eternity in a place called, in Revelation, the lake of fire. If you die without Christ, you're just in the same condition as Judas. It would have been better had you not been born. Judas makes the mother of all bad decisions when he betrayed Jesus. It it ranks right up there with Adam and Eve. And here he was standing at a crossroad in life and he took the wrong path. So what did Judas do wrong that made Jesus say, Judas, you'd been better had you not been born? There are three things, and listen to me, we're going to run through these quickly, but it's the same things people in this very building are doing this morning. Number one, here's what he did wrong When he was at a crossroad, he chose the earthly over the heavenly. The Bible says in verse 26, from that time on, he sought opportunity to how he might betray Jesus. So here we... Here we find Judas at one of the most holy moments in all the Bible. Get this. Look look this way. Here we find Judas... What has just happened is Jesus has been anointed with oil at Bethany. You remember that lady who came in and poured the expensive oil on Jesus? And it was it's one of the most holy moments in all of the Bible. And he has been anointed with that oil. Now, what's going to happen next is he's going to eat the Passover with his disciples. Again, one of the most holy moments in all of Christianity. One of the most holy moments in all of Trinity. So it's bookended. You've got the anointing of Jesus on one hand. You have the Lord's Supper uh, on the other hand. And what does Judas do right between those two things? He goes out. And he sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Between the two most holy moments in history, he sells Jesus. He saw both of those. He was a participant in both of those events. And in between those two events, he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, why, why did he do it? The historians and commentators, they 
they profit or at least a couple of reasons why he did it. Some say he did it for the money, but can I be honest, 30 pieces of silver is not a lot of money. We don't exactly know how much it is, and, and it, we don't know what kind of coin it was because some coins had 100% purity, some had 50% purity, and their worth was determined by the purity, but at the absolute most it could have been, it was a couple of months worth of salary. At the least it could have been, it was a couple of days worth of salary. As a matter of fact, when, when, he, when he threw the money and gave it back, the Bible says they went and bought, he went and bought a potter's field. Now, potter's field was a, or, or the priest went and bought a potter's field. A potter's field was a piece of land that a potter owned, a guy who made pottery, plates and cups and that kind of thing, and he would mine it out. So when the potter was through with the field, it was basically a worthless piece of land. You couldn't grow anything on it, couldn't do anything on it. And so the potter would sell it almost always for graves. And Jews would not be buried in a potter's field, but... They would bury strangers, people who had died on a journey they didn't know. They would bury them in a potter's field. So chances are it was just a minuscule amount of money. But it may be that he sold Jesus for the money. Because you know the story about Judas. He was, the, he was the accountant of the group. He was the checkbook keeper of the group. He held the bag of money. So it's very possible he did it for the money. There are others that say he did it because of this, that Judas was very concerned about the kingdom of God, and he, wanted, he belonged to a sect that wanted the kingdom of God to come now. As a matter of fact, Judas wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman government. Now, and by the way, a lot of people wanted that as well. And so some people believe that when he figured out Jesus was going to go to the cross, he got mad at Jesus because he wasn't going to set up an earthly kingdom. And he, and he betrayed Jesus. Now some say, and this is worth mentioning, that he betrayed Jesus so he could force Jesus to destroy the Roman government. That if I betray him, he's the son of God. And if he really is the son of God, he won't let them kill him. And so he'll, he'll set up his earthly kingdom. And so maybe he thought he could force Jesus into setting up the earthly kingdom. I, I don't know which one of those it was. We'll never know until we get to heaven. Was it over money? Was it over anger? Was it trying to force his hand? But here's what we do know. Uh, no matter which of those it was, here's what we know. The reason he did it was because he chose the earthly over the heavenly. Judas decided he'd rather have his fortune now. Judas decided he'd rather have his kingdom now. He decided he'd rather have his pleasure, his passion, his freedom now and for all of eternity. Now hold on because there's some of you here today that look down your nose at Judas but if you're standing at a crossroad today making the exact same decision he did. I'm choosing comfort now over my eternity. I'm choosing pleasure now over my eternity. And you're here today, and I don't know who you are, but you are choosing the earthly over the heavenly. And this is something I used to tell my kids all the time. You can ask them when they were young. I would say, never sacrifice your future on the altar of the present. Never sacrifice your eternity over today. Never sacrifice the heavenly. Don't ever choose the earthly over heavenly. You may get a win now, but you're losing in the long run. You know you, you, know you can do that in marriage, right? You, you know you can do that in marriage. Like me, and I don't know if you figured it out or not, but you can, you can be right in every argument. Some of you newlyweds. Your husband, you're like, yeah, 
I'm always right. Uh-huh. You're not smart either. Because <laughs> you, cause you, you, you're winning the battle, but you're losing the war. I mean, don't, don't raise your hand. Good Lord, don't raise your hand. Maybe how many times have you been right? Like, you know you've been right. You could pull out a chapter and verse, and, right? right. You could pull out uh, uh, Google. You, you could pull out something, and you can prove you're right, and you can win an argument. But can I tell you, how many times have you wished you hadn't have won the argument? I heard about one guy, man, he's always right. Just always had to have the last word, always proving his wife wrong. And one time they'd gotten a, just a verbal knockdown drag out and he was right again and he proved he was right. And she had just backed off, man. She'd got over the last few, uh, last year or so, she just wasn't hard to argue with him. If he was right, he was just choosing to let him be right. And uh, he, 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 he said to her one day, he just said, pounding her verbally, you know, to dust. And he's like kind of sticking his chest out. And he said, hey, I noticed that when I win these arguments, you get awful quiet and you don't ever yell back at me. How is it that you're holding your temper in check? And she said, hey, it's no problem. Here's what I do. When, when we're in an argument like that and, and you win, I'll, I just go clean the toilets. That's so weird. How does you cleaning the toilet seat help you hold your anger in check? She said, I, I use your toothbrush to do it. <laughs> Men, I have now given your wife an idea. Be very careful. He was choosing the short term over the long term. And can I tell you that when you choose the earthly over the heavenly, you are making a pun intended grave decision in your life. When you, when you choose money over your salvation, when you choose fun over your salvation, when you choose your job and success over salvation, when you choose sin over your salvation. Some of you here today and you value your business more than you do your soul. You value your job more than you do your soul. You value your fun more than you do your soul. And I'm telling you, don't choose the earthly over the heavenly. It's exactly what Judas did. He was not some demon-possessed maniac. He was a man who stood at a crossroad in life and made the absolute wrong decision. He chose now over eternity. He chose the earthly, earthly over the heavenly. And there's so many people that will hear me preach every Sunday and, and, and you say, I'd rather have it now. But can I tell you, you would not. You would not. You would not. The second mistake Judas made was this. He got close, but he never got in. Here's what he said. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, sees him. Immediately went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Now, here's the thing about Judas. He got close enough to give him a kiss. Judas used an impersonal uh, word. He used the word rabbi. Now, the word the disciples had most normally used was the word Lord. And really, by translation, if you had to put a modifier in front of the word Lord, it would have been the personal pronoun, my Lord. When they said Lord, that's what they meant, was my Lord. Well, Judas goes up to Jesus, and he doesn't even use a personal pronoun. He doesn't even use the word Lord, which is what the disciples typically use. He used the word rabbi, which meant the teacher. Not mine, the. He uses an impersonal greeting, and he goes up to give Jesus a kiss. 
Now in the Greek, the word kiss there can actually mean a lingering kiss. And some have proffered that, that maybe Judas went up and when he was about to give Jesus that kiss of greeting on the cheek, that he felt the breath of heaven on his face. And what looked like a linger was a hesitation. Because he got close enough to give Jesus a kiss. But he wasn't close enough to get in. Can I tell you that there are some of you here today that you are real close to Jesus. But you're not in. There are some of you here today that you come to church but you're not in. That you help out but you're not in. That you know a little bit about this Bible but you're not in. That you sing our songs but you're not in. You are so close. You're not in. And when it comes to salvation, close is not good enough. Hey, today's a holiday. Do you know what today's holiday is? Somebody tell me. All right, Selection Sunday. That's exactly what it is. It's college foot basketball, men's championship, Selection Sunday. It's a holiday. And I don't know if you follow, it's called March Madness. How many of you heard of March Madness? Be honest, raise your hand. You heard of March Madness? Yeah, March Madness. Most of us have, even if you don't follow college basketball. For oftentimes, this was considered the second largest sporting event of the year in America behind the Super Bowl. Now the college playoffs have snuck in on it a little bit, but this is a huge deal that, that today 68 teams will be chosen to participate in the final tournament of college basketball. And uh, uh, they're finishing up yesterday and today, the conference championships. There's a selection committee, but their job is not that hard. The 32 conference champions get in automatically. It doesn't matter what your record is. It doesn't matter what your score is. If you win your college championship, then uh, you're in. It doesn't matter if you win the ACC or the Mid-Eastern Atlantic uh, Conference. You're in, man. ACC, SEC. And by the way, props to Tennessee. There you go. I said it. You'll never hear me say it again, so this is a momentous day in history. Tennessee beat Kentucky today, and listen, I've said to several of you, uh, Tennessee may be the most obnoxious football fans I know, but Kentucky is the most obnoxious basketball fans I know. So good for y'all. Like, I'm props to Tennessee. Georgia doesn't quite have a basketball team yet. We're trying. We don't have one. So, I mean, man, Tennessee did great yesterday, and uh, I need a little credit for saying that. I mean, that, that's not coming out much. Best I can do. First 32 teams are in. Then they have to pick the best at large teams of the 68. And, and, and really, a, of the 36 teams left to choose, 30 of those are easy to do. Like Kentucky lost the, in the tournament, but they're getting in. I mean, they'll, they'll be in, no problem. They'll be a, probably a second seed, third seed at the worst in, in the championship. And so uh, Kentucky's in. That's easy to easy decision to make. But there's always some teams that they're never quite sure about. In college basketball, we call those bubble teams. You ever heard that expression? It means they're on the bubble of getting in. And the selection committee will spend a lot of time today talking about things like RPI, ratings percentage index. They'll talk about things like strength of schedule. They'll talk about things like losses outside the top 100 RPI. They'll talk about things like quadrant one and quadrant two wins. And you say, preacher, what are you talking about? I don't know. I don't know either. It's complex. It's confusing. But it'll get down to where they choose the 67th 
and the 68th team and number 69 will be so angry today. Number 70 will be so angry. Their coach will get on television and talk about why he should have been in. Their players will get on Twitter and talk about why they should have gotten in. They will be so upset and they'll, keep, they'll, they'll refer to it as this. They'll, call, they'll say they were snubbed. It was a snub that, that the committee turned their nose up at that team as they're making an argument on why they should have been in. But the fact is they were the 69 team. If there were 69 teams, they would have gotten in. But there were only 68 they were so close, but they didn't quite make it. Can I tell you that there's some of you here today, you're like that 69th team in basketball. Can I, you are so close. And can I tell you this? Hey, look this way. You do a lot of Christian things like you are a good person. You help your neighbor. You help little old ladies across the road. Somebody's car breaks down. You stop and give them a lift. You, you give the guy $5 at the Braves game. You pay for somebody's meal at the grocery store, uh, you know, food at the grocery You do all the right things you do. You come to church. You probably help out a little bit. You're good to the preacher. You don't kick any dogs. You, 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 you get rid of all the cats you can get rid of. I mean, you're a good person. Person. Did I say that out loud? I am so sorry. You do a lot of Christian things. But close is not good enough. Can I tell you this? And this is hard to hear. But being close to being saved lands you in the same category as Hitler, Judas. Ted Bundy. You said, Preacher, I'm not like that. I know you're not. But they weren't saved either. And there's only two places to go heaven for saved people, hell for not saved people. And if you're not a believer, you say, But I do a lot of Christian things. I know you do. Hey, but look at me. There's no such thing as very lost. And there's no such thing as almost saved. There's only lost and saved. And some of you here this morning, you're close, but you're not in. And if you don't get in, you'll spend eternity in a place called hell. Let me show you the third thing that happened to Judas, and that's this. He got what he wanted. But he didn't want what he got. He got what he wanted. He didn't want what he got. Look what it says in verse 5 in Matthew 27. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. So follow me now. Judas chose the earthly over the heavenly. He got 30. He wanted 30 pieces of silver. He got 30 pieces of silver. And now, it, and by the time we get to verse number five in chapter 27, it's only been a matter of hours. He's only had that bag of money for a matter of hours. It was not even in his possession for a full day. And he already regrets trading his soul for a bag of money. He came back to the priest and he tried to undo what he did. And we get to chapter 27 and we, we read where he came back to the priest and he said, I betrayed innocent blood. I've done the wrong things. And they said, we don't, it's too late. 
this illegal trial in the middle of the night is already going on and he, we've already got him condemned. I mean, not yet, but he will be. And, and we don't want anything to do with you. We don't even want anything to do with your regret. It wasn't repentance, it was regret. And so Judas took the 30 pieces of silver and he threw the money down on the floor and he walked out and took his own life. And here's the deal. He got exactly what he wanted. But when he wanted, he didn't want what he got. Now look this way this morning. I do not know why you are not getting saved. There's something standing between you and salvation. There's something standing between you and Jesus. But listen to me carefully. When you get whatever it is you want one day, you would trade it and a million times over for your soul. You're going to get it and realize that it's not what you thought it would be. We tend to overestimate the joy something will bring us and we underestimate the impact it's going to make on our eternity. We overestimate the joy that that thing is going to bring us. We underestimate. Hey, this is a terrible way to illustrate this, but it, it, you'll, you'll get it when I say it. I do this every time I go to the movies. I have a mental fascination with movie popcorn. Does anybody else love movie popcorn besides me? I love movie popcorn. Now, I don't, I don't get it in the little sissy bag. I want the big tub of movie popcorn, and, and I get a big tub of it. My wife's always like, you don't need a large, and uh, I'm like, I, I, nobody's talking about what I need. I want a big tub of movie popcorn. We'll be walking up to the thing to get some popcorn, and she'll be like, you want to split a popcorn? I'm like, get your own popcorn. This tub is mine. I want a bathtub full of movie popcorn. I love it. And I like butter on it. And I just don't, sometimes the little guy behind the counter, he'd be like, well, we got butter over there. I'm like, no, sir. I want you to layer the butter on it as you put it in it. So I want like a layer of popcorn and then butter. And a layer, it takes them an hour, but another layer of popcorn and then butter and another layer of popcorn and butter. And then when, uh, when, when they're done, I walk it over to the butter machine. I'm like hitting the pedal myself, you know, like more butter on top of it. And I put salt on. Basically, it's a heart attack in a bucket is what it is. And, and, and I drink it with the Diet Coke, so it washes away all the calories while I'm in there. And so I get this big bucket of popcorn. It's got butter on it. It's got pop. It's, it's horrible for me. And, and, but I sit there, and I eat it, and I be loving every bite. And my wife be like, can I have a piece? I'm like, no, get, I got mine. I love you, though. But, I mean, I, it's like, this is my popcorn, and I'm eating it. And I'll sit there and eat it the whole movie long. And I don't eat it, like, one bite at a time. I'm like, what this person in my face? I love it so much. I love it. Until I'm walking out of the theater. And every time, you ask her, she's sitting over there. Every time I'm dragging that bucket of popcorn, that Diet Coke out. My blood pressure's high because I've ate so much salt. And my, my cholesterol's probably crying, needing a defibrillator, you know. And my cholesterol's upset. They don't know what's going on. And I say with this to my wife every time. Hey, remind me the next time we come to a movie. I don't like this stuff as much as I think I do. Remind me next time to get a small and to bring carrots with me when I come to the movies. <laughs> and then we'll go to the movies again. I walk up to the counter, say, what would you like? Small popcorn? Look at me, lady. I want a tub of popcorn with layered butter on it. 
And my wife is like, Joel, you told me to remind you you don't like it as much. And I'm like, mind your own business, woman. This is my tub of popcorn. <laughs> and then I walk out again and I say, remind me next time I don't love this as much as I think I do. Because here's the truth. I got what I wanted, but when I got it, I didn't want it. Did you close your Bibles and let me preach just for a moment? I'm telling you, whatever it is standing between you and the Lord, for some of you, you're embarrassed to walk down an aisle and trust Jesus and you trading a few minutes of comfort over your eternal soul. For some of you, it's a sin in your life and you're trading your eternal comfort for your soul. For some of you, it's a pleasure in your life. For some of you, whatever it may be, you know, you've met some Christians who are bad people. Yes, yes, we're all sinners. You say, well, I know some Christians who are hypocrites. So do I. If you get saved, you'll be a hypocrite every now and then too. Because we're all sinners. But there's coming a day when you will regret every single thing that you traded. That you said, I got to have that. I don't want to get saved, but I got to have that. I don't want to get saved, but I got to have that. I don't want to get saved, but I got to have that. Listen to what Jesus said. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Jesus said, let's just sum it all up. Whatever it is that's keeping you from being saved, let's give you everything. Now, when you die, what would you rather have? All that stuff that's gone. Or would you rather have your eternal soul? It's a rhetorical question. What would you give in exchange for your soul? The answer is nothing. Can I tell you this? I promise you, I promise you, I promise you that if you get what you want, there's coming a day you won't want what you've got. The very thing you traded your soul for, money, promotion, fun, a relationship, a party, success, comfort. You say, preacher, I'm embarrassed to get saved. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. One day you will throw it all down in disgust. You'll be angry with yourself. Because you're going to spend eternity in a place called hell apart from God. And that very thing you traded your soul for is no longer worth it. Oh, you got what you wanted. But you didn't want it when you got it. You stand with me with your head. Just look this way. Stand with me. Don't, don't bow your heads. Look this way. There's some of you here today and you are very close to being saved. But yet you're choosing the earthly over the heavenly. There's some of you here today that you are so close. But you're not in. And listen, you're here today and, and your name may be on the church roll, but God's not calling the church roll in heaven. And you're, listen, your name may be on the choir roll and God's not calling the choir roll. It may be on the Sunday school roll. It may be on the greeter roll. It may be on the kids ministry roll. None of those matter. Jesus is calling the names who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And you're so close. You've got your name on every roll. But the one that matters, 
You're so close, but you're not in. Can we fix that today? Can we lay aside everything that you're, that's blocking you and standing in your way from becoming a Christian and being saved? Can we just lay all of that aside and just say none of it's worth it? I want Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Our staff is coming and nobody's looking around. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I'm just going to straight up ask you. I'm not going to come to where you are. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you by name. As a matter of fact, I have lights in my face. I can barely see faces. But I need, I need you to have a moment of honesty with yourself, with God. How many of you would be honest enough with yourself and with God and you would say this morning, here's the deal, I don't think I'm saved. I don't have any comfort of when I lay my head on my pillow at night that if I were to die before morning that I'd spend eternity with God, with Jesus. I, I'm just not sure I'm saved. And this morning God's really speaking to my heart and I, I just don't want to turn that away. I don't want to turn this moment away. Now, I'm not going to come to where you are. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you by name. I just need you to have an honest moment with God. Would you this morning just admit it, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Would you just admit it by lifting a hand and say, preacher, I don't think I'm saved and I, I need to be saved. If that's you, just slip your hand up, hold it up. I'm going to scan teenager, adults all around the room. Just hold your hand up for a second so I can see. It's going to take me a moment to scan. Hold your hand up. Thank you. Thank you. I see that hand. Somebody else quickly. Somebody else. Thank you. Thank you. I see that hand in the back. Somebody else. Hey, preacher, I need to be saved. I need to be saved. I don't want to trade my soul for something that doesn't matter. I don't want to be close but not in. Preacher, I need to be saved. I'm not coming to where you are. Thank you for that hand. Somebody else. I'm not coming to where you are. Just raise your hand. Just acknowledge it to yourself. Preacher, I need to be saved. I need to be saved. So our heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you're here today, whether you raise your hand or not, then you need to be saved. I'm going to ask you to pray with me now. There's no prayer that, that saves you. It's the intent of your heart to trust Jesus. But I want to help you pray. I don't want you to leave this building and you say, well, I didn't know how to pray. I'm, I'm going to help you pray. You can pray this out loud or in your heart right now. But if you'd like to be saved, pray, pray something like this with me. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I know I can't save myself. But I know that Christ died on the cross for my sins so I could be saved. And just now, I invite Jesus into my life to forgive me of my sins and to give me a home in heaven. And I trust Jesus and Jesus only to save me. Now, while our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, if you just prayed that prayer, you are born again. If you, if you trusted Jesus just now, you're born again. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week, helping you to apply God's Word to your daily life. For more information about Peavine, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.peavine.org. Thanks for listening.